I need to be really upfront with you and say that working in the nonprofit sector and, and working with people who are really vulnerable is not easy. Um, but it has been just the greatest privilege of my life. And I found that I've become, I think I mentioned earlier, I've become a much more hopeful person. And it's made me more hopeful, not just for the clients that we serve, but it's made me more hopeful for the future. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And on today's episode, we bring on Alia Ayers, the CEO of Mother's Choice, who went from a pretty nice corporate lawyer lifestyle to living in a foster care center in Hong Kong. In this episode, you're about to find out why. And through all of these messages, folks, after the end of this podcast, someone asked me, said, what'd you think of this episode? I said, you know, I thought it was emotional, whether it's the, the pain, the sacrifice, the love, the hospitality, and just the overall forgiveness that Alia shares with her children had a profound impact on my perspective of what goes on. And I hope it does for you. So with that being said, folks, without further ado, let's welcome the real Alia Ayers. Enjoy. We will go live in three, two, one. Welcome, Crowdcast. Welcome, LinkedIn, to the Relators Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Alia Ayers, the CEO of Mother's Choice. Alia, thanks for being with us today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity. Of course. Well, Alia, I think you got a really interesting story. I'm really excited for our audience to just absorb your past, your career, some of the changes you made along the way, and now why you're doing what you're doing. So before we get into all the good stuff, I just want to know, what was your upbringing like? Actually, I had a pretty unusual upbringing. I was born and raised here in Hong Kong, where I'm speaking to you from today. But um, my father is originally from India, and my mother is originally from the United States. And they met right here in Hong Kong on the iconic Star Ferry. And in those days, having a, a mixed marriage like that was very unusual. And not only were they together from two very different cultures, um, but they raised us here in Hong Kong, which was a British colony at the time. And they had seven of us children, which was also highly unusual in our community. Um, we went to mostly British schools and yeah, we did not fit the mold. But I think growing up in such an unusual family, but the, a family that has such a strong sense of values and purpose uh, really shaped who I am and my approach to life. So maybe explain for an outsider like myself, like the tradition in Hong Kong, your, your father's from India, your mother's from, I think you said New Mexico, and an episode I listened to, I mean, what was that like? And did you face any discrimination uh, for looking a little bit different? Yeah, definitely. I think in those days and even now, um, being mixed race uh, was unusual when it was Indian and American. And um, then in an environment which was a British colony and a mostly Chinese population, um, we definitely faced discrimination at school, at work for my parents. Uh, it certainly wasn't socially acceptable, and we faced a lot of challenges. But 
I really value and appreciate my parents because um, they not only were determined to make their own choices in life, I think they really challenged us as kids to embrace our identity and also to um, choose who we wanted to be. And I think their focus on values and our character uh, really gave us more confidence um, to face some of those challenges. And I think every single one of my brothers and sisters now, I can see the difference that they're making in their um, community here in Hong Kong and around the world. What were some of those values and how were they explained to you? Sure. Well, in Hong Kong, one of the core values is education and um, really doing well in school is important for parents um, in this community. And my mom was always kind of radical in that she uh, would go to our parent-teacher conferences and, and actually she rarely did that because with seven kids, it was just too much to coordinate. But when she would go to our parent-teacher conferences, she would ask our teachers only one question. She, said, she would say, um, is my child kind to others? And she was really unusual in our city and that she had determined uh, a different standard for what success meant to her. Um, she didn't care how we were doing in our maths or in our English. She just wanted to know if we were kind to others because that is her, um, that's her definition of success in life. And I could see my dad, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur and um, started many different businesses. Um, but for him, his core value uh, no matter whether we were um, doing very well financially or we weren't. Uh, his core value and their core value together was generosity. So we were always um, welcoming people into our home. Uh, I saw my parents give very freely, uh, no matter what the status of our bank balance. And I think it really inspired me. And now that I have six of my own children, I think that redefining success as kindness as generosity and ultimately hospitality, being willing to welcome the stranger, the hurting, the lonely into our own home, uh, that has really uh, shaped the kind of person I want to be and I want my children to be as they grow up. You know, it's a simple message. Why don't you think more people are kind? I hear it all the time. I wish people were better. I wish they were more genuine. I wish people were more kind. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I, I think... The biggest challenge for people in being kind, um, one is um, lack of knowledge or understanding. We find that Mother's Choice, the organization that I run, we well, we care for babies and children that don't have families, as well as pregnant teenagers. And all of the clients that we serve, they've really been rejected by our community or ostracized mm -hmm. or or abandoned or neglected. And I find that it's not that people in our city don't want to be kind to them. Oh, or even when we see people hurting in our own social circles, it's not that people don't want to be kind, it's that they don't really understand. They don't know what this child or this young woman has gone through. I think the second biggest challenge to people being kind is not just that lack of knowledge, it's fear. And we fear the unknown. Now, I think we have so many children on the waiting list who need um, foster care in our city, who need a safe, temporary, loving place to stay. Um, while our city fights for them either to be reunited with their family or to be adopted. 
And we find one of the biggest challenges, even though people, once we explain the nature of the challenge in our city, because most people look at Hong Kong, I'm looking out my window right now, it's a glittering, beautiful, modern skyline. They think there can't be children who need help in our city. Um, once we explain it to them and they understand, they have a heart for those kids. But there's a lot of fear. What if this child comes into my home and they steal from me? Or what if this child comes into my home and I fall in love with them and then I have to say goodbye or what if they come into my home and i don't know how long they'll be here for so i think fear and um, lack of knowledge are really what hold people back from being kindness but from showing kindness but i think the good thing is um, raising awareness even in this podcast being able to talk about these issues um the impact every city around the world is is really important so thank you of course. Well, thank you for coming on. Now, when you were growing up, though, these values of empathy, understanding, connecting, being genuine around people, what drove you to leave Hong Kong, experience new places? And then what did you find when you went to America, where your mother was from? Yeah. Well, I think the great privilege of growing up in a city like Hong Kong is it is very international. And then growing up in a um, a multicultural um, home myself, uh, traveling and wanting to see the world. That was part of who we were. And um, so it made sense uh, for me to try. I spent a couple of years doing volunteer work in South America and in Europe. And then um, when I went to university, I, I went to the United States, which is my mother's country of birth. And I studied international affairs. Because in my, in my heart, despite what we read in the news, I, I really believe that there's so much more that connects people um, from different cultures and different countries than what divides them. And being able to study uh, how we can bring people together was, uh, yeah, that was really a motivating factor for me to move to Washington, D.C. and study international affairs. Now, what is something that all cultures experience, all cultures have that we might not be uh, knowledgeable about? Well, I think something that we all have in common is a love and a value for family. You know, it's funny, no matter what country I visit, or what place I go to. Um, and my husband is also from a multicultural background. He's, he's Irish. Both of his parents are from Ireland, but he grew up in East Africa. So our kids are, are really uh, have a unique background. But um, something that I find in every country that we visit is, is that people say, well, our culture, our country values family. And, and that's what I think really unifies people. And, you know, one thing we always say at Mother's Choice is if we want to see our cultures and our communities transformed, if we want to see our world become a bigger, a better place, um, we always talk about Mother Teresa's quote. <laughs> she said, the problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. If we can redefine what family means, no matter where in the world we live, if we can see the hurting, or the vulnerable, the lonely in our own cities, and our own towns as part of our family, as our brothers and sisters, I think that the world would look like a very different place. I mean, it's really difficult to love my brothers sometimes. I'll leave. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Now, what do you mean by that specifically? Because I love my brother to death, but I I can't get rid of him sometimes. You know, it's tough. That's like the worst part about it, you know. But what do you mean by that specifically? Jokes aside, what do you mean by that in terms of redefining what a family means? What does that mean to you? 
Yeah. Well, something that we say a Mother's Choice is not looking at family as just blood. But a really defining family is love and commitment. And I think that um, those two words is really what makes all the difference. Because when you're committed to somebody, um, you stick together no matter what, even when it's hard. You're in for the long haul. And when you when you love somebody, it means you forgive them when they hurt your feelings or you're, you're willing to come into conflict, not from a place of offense, but from a place of, yeah, I want to work this out with you. You know, I, I want to interpret your actions, what you're doing in the best possible light. I want to believe the best in you. And I think that ultimately that's what everybody needs. We need somebody who's going to love us, who's going to see our potential and see our destiny and really call out the best in us. So when someone tells you, or I'm fearful of growing an attachment and having to let somebody go, I'm fearful of someone maybe making a mistake and then me having to leave them, what would you say to that? How does one get around the fear of having their heart broken by someone they care about most? Yeah, I think that's a driving fear for so many people. And it's certainly something that stops people from engaging in foster care or even just in the act of being in a relationship and a friendship or a romantic relationship with somebody. And I certainly know from my own experience, um, in addition to being married and having my own kids, I'm also an emergency foster parent. And I know that it is really hard. It is hard to love somebody because you're exposing yourself, whether they're a foster child or they're your own child or they're your partner or your spouse or even a friend, you're exposing yourself to your being vulnerable. And um, there's a chance that you'll be hurt or rejected or left. I say that is the that is the beauty of love and that is the beauty of vulnerability. If you can't do it, you will never experience what it's like to be loved back. And so knowing that um, that it's painful, but that it's beautiful and that you can receive so much more than you could possibly ever um, give is, you know, that, I mean, that's my husband, I remember when we uh, welcomed our first foster child into our home, my husband was very, very reluctant. And um, it was an emergency situation. So despite my husband's reservations on a Friday night, I got a phone call and they said, there's a little boy who has no other place to go. And if you don't accept him, there's there's just no placement for him. They might have to put him into the juvenile delinquent home. Wow. And it was a toddler. And I thought, well, I couldn't say no. And um, we welcomed him into our home. And um, eventually uh, he needed to go back to his birth family, um, which we knew was a very um, challenging and unsafe environment. Right. And it was painful. Our whole family, uh, our whole family cried. We were all heartbroken. Um, but at the end of the day, it hurt us. But we feel like our hearts have expanded, if I'm honest, like, we realized that we have the capacity to do hard things. And having been there, even for that short time, for that little boy who needed us, um, we got to pour into his life. We got to love on him. And we'll never know the impact um, that it has on his life in the long run. So, yeah, being vulnerable is hard, but it's so worth it. It, it, it. 
I want to dive into that a little bit later about impact and not realizing the impact. But let's just take Mm -hmm. a step back a little bit. You're Mm -hmm. in college. You go to GW. I heard you're on the rowing team. Um, I heard there's an award named after you because my my cousin won it. Uh, She actually wrote for for GW. Yeah, yeah, there's a little connection there. Um, But the team building aspect of this, you've always been uh, a leader driven by your values. You've always been someone who's wanted to be around the team. You've always been team oriented. Uh, What have you learned from your experiences uh, by traveling abroad, being working for a team in a sports environment that you've been able to apply to Mother's Choice? You know, there's that old proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. (laughs) Um, But if you want to go far, you go together, right? And when I think about um, the vulnerable families and young people and children that we serve, they all have one thing in common, um, and that's social isolation. They don't have a strong support network. And, And that's really the root cause of what, how children end up in, um, residential care. Their families are struggling, they encounter a crisis or a tragedy, and they don't have that extended family friendship support around them to help them walk through difficult time. But what I've learned is it's not just the vulnerable or the recipients of a charity in your local community that um, suffer from social isolation or who need other people. We all need other people. We all, um, you know, they say it takes a village. It really does take a village. And I have learned that it is so much more powerful when we work together. I mean, in rowing, I was on a crew team for all four years. Um, If you are not in perfect unison with your team, despite your differences, despite how you might feel about each other, despite what happened to you the day before, how you're feeling that morning, if you're not in perfect sync, the boat is not set and, um, and you can't go fast. And I think it's the same in work too. I think the greatest privilege of my life has been um, working with this team here at Mother's Choice and um, especially actually on our executive leadership team, being able to recruit some really talented people from from the uh, for-profit sector who left their jobs at the stock exchange at global banks at, you know, at Disney to come uh, and work alongside. But I think even for us, recognizing we can't do it by ourselves. Not only do we need to be united, um, and we need to uh, cover for each other and bring our different talents and gifts to the table, but recognizing, especially for nonprofit leaders, uh, we don't have the kind of infrastructure, certainly that I had before when I was in the for-profit sector, you know, a huge HR team, huge IT team, and people who are gonna invest in you, and um, you know, a global practice, um, you know, for us, we really need others. Now, Alia, what? Oh, I lost you there for a second. You lose me. Ah, um, we really need others. And I, I think, uh, you know, key for me has been looking for teams outside of my own internal team. So I belong to something called Young Presidents Organization, YPO. And um, being intentional about building a network around me of other leaders that I can learn from and lean on and um, who can be there for me, that's really been a key for me. So being part of a team and being intentional about building team around me, uh, I think that's what sustained me here in my wall. Now, Alia, uh, you mentioned people leaving their jobs in, in the corporate world to come work for you. I hear this all the time. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people 
go from uh, corporate America or in your case, you know, being a corporate lawyer um, mm-hmm. to work for something that's bigger than themselves? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's important to recognize I, I had no idea what the reality of working in nonprofit was when I was still working in the corporate sector. I think most people understand that the real benefit of leaving the for-profit sector and working full-time in nonprofit is that sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, You know, the financial rewards are certainly not the same, but there is uh, knowing that you are making a difference, having a strong sense of purpose and working in a values-driven organization. um, That is, uh, you know, that's it's. I find that I've become a much more hopeful person, quite frankly, because I get to see miracles happen on a daily basis. But in really seeing successful crossover leaders, people who leave the corporate sector to work in nonprofit, uh, you know, because many people do it and they get burned out and they get um, disappointed and they go back. <laughs> so I think to be a successful crossover leader, it's really recognizing the unique challenges that come from being in nonprofit. Um, there's actually a great Stanford Social Innovation Review article that I always recommend to people, but um, it talks about uh, some of the bigger challenges and that there's a lot more need for consensus building and there's a lot more stakeholders that you have to deal with. And at the end of the day, it's um, not just the lack or of resources or the, you know, less team, but you have to find ways to motivate people that are not financial. You know, pretty much everybody on my team could go work somewhere else. You know, people also, it's really hard. I think one of the things I talk about often is measuring impact and being able, when you don't have the bottom line, when you're not just talking about your profits at the end of the year, you know, being able to measure um, a changed human life, in a way that people can understand, in a way that's kind of sustainable, and in a way that you can articulate the difference that you're making, it's, it's really hard. So it definitely has its unique challenges, but um, I'm really grateful for many of our team who've made that jump. So Ollie, maybe bring our audience up to speed. Uh, who are you working for now? What is the intention of Mother's Choice? Um, and, and exactly how are you measuring uh, transforming these lives? Yeah, sure. Well, our vision is a vision of a totally transformed world where our culture has changed because our vision is every child growing up in a safe, loving, and permanent family. And I recognize that that's a big goal. And I'll tell you this, Kevin, I know that it's something that we can't do on our own. And that's why our mission, how we do things around here, is we join hands with the community. We're an 80% volunteer organization. We work very closely with many others in in our community. We join hands with our community so we can give hope and change life stories, really engaging in a way that a whole life is transformed. And the problem that we're dealing with here in Hong Kong that most people don't see when they look at the postcard or the image in the back of the news when they see somebody reporting from Hong Kong is that um, when families don't have a strong support network, um, as I mentioned, and that's Um, very uh, common here in Hong Kong where one in five children lives in poverty. Um, Their children can oftentimes end up in the residential care system. So that's like foster care, orphanages, small group homes. And um, the challenge with um, children growing up without a safe, loving, permanent family is um, 
that generally they go into the system, they stay there for years, often until they're 18. And when children grow up without that family and in the residential care system, they're more likely to go to prison. In fact, I think it's almost 80% of the men in prison in the U.S. grew up in foster care, but it's same for around the world. They're more likely to go to prison. They're more likely to have both physical and mental health problems. They're more likely to do drugs, to leave school early. And of course, if they are a girl, astronomically more likely to get pregnant between the ages of 12 and 18. And of course, if you're a teenager and you get pregnant, um, you're, and you, you have your child, you're least likely to be able to care for your child. You don't have a support network around you. Um, those girls end up placing their children into the residential care system, and then the cycle begins again. So at Mother's Choice, we have seven different frontline services, working with babies and children that don't have families, working with young people who are pregnant or at risk of becoming pregnant, and then working with families, foster, adoptive, and birth families. But everything that we're doing, um, no matter where in that cycle, we're aiming at breaking that cycle because the answer is really family and community. Every child needs a family. No family can do it alone. Um, they need the community around them. And we really believe that it's possible to make our, our vision become a reality. Amazing. Now, Alia, where are you tuning in from right now? Like, What building are you in? Where are you? I am in my office, which is in our pregnant girls hostel. Um, we work with hundreds and hundreds of girls each year. Um, but uh, some of them who are in the most um, dangerous uh, situation, meaning that they uh, don't have, they're homeless or they're uh, in an abusive or unsafe family situation or um, they just need additional help, they might come and live with us in our refuge. So my office is, that's where, I, that's where I'm speaking to you from today. Is this something you had to give up? I mean, is this something that was a major sacrifice for you? Or do you kind of see this as a blessing? You're like, you know, I get this opportunity, you know, to kind of experience this. And, you know, do you feel like your purpose is strengthened because of, uh, you know, your experiences now? And, and you know, you, you are one of, you know, probably not that many people that actually have the knowledge and get experience what you have and are act- actively trying to seek a solution. Yeah. So I remember when I was leaving my old job and my boss asked me why I was making this sacrifice at the exact wrong moment in my career path. And I remember telling him, this isn't a sacrifice for me. Um, Although now I realize eight and a half years later, there have been many sacrifices along the way. But I said, this is, this is a calling. And it certainly is a, I need to be really upfront with you and say that working in the nonprofit sector and and working with people who are really vulnerable is not easy. Um, But it has been just the greatest privilege of my life. And I found that I've become, I think I mentioned earlier, I've become a much more hopeful person. And it's made me more hopeful, not just for the clients that we serve, but it's made me more hopeful for the future. Even in watching the news now and you see so much hurt and heartache and division all around the world. Uh, I, I have hope even in the midst of 2020. And that's because I've learned in eight and a half years and being in this job. And actually I've been, I, I've been a, a volunteer at mother's choice since I was nine because my parents are two of the co-founders. I have learned that there's just no such thing as a hopeless situation. Even the most um, broken and hurt people um, when we invest in their lives, 
you know, they, we can see their lives transform. Not that it minimizes or discounts the hurt or the reality of what's happened to them, but people can have a good future. And um, everybody deserves a second chance. So I've really become a much more hopeful person. I think it's helped um, bring me through 2020. Now, where did you start? Where are you now? And you mentioned you want to be measuring your impact, right? Like, what are some, maybe some of the key metrics that you pay attention to that know that you are tracking your progress as you continue forward? Well, just uh, talking about um, measuring where we are. You know, Mother's Choice started 33 years ago and um, really has been a primarily volunteer organization all these years. And um, when we look at measuring our success and if we're really moving the needle in our community, yeah, you know, nonprofits actually need to have the tools to measure their success. And I remember when I, I joined uh, Mother's Choice full time, uh, you know, leaving behind the law firm, coming to work here, I, I asked if I could see um, the business plan and there was none. And then when I started going to my monthly meetings with my team and, and asking for reports on how things are doing, I, you know, I would be given these kind of reams of paper, stacks of paper that I could hardly interpret. And I realized that, you know, in that effort to keep administrative costs down, um, we didn't have fiber optic cables to our building, which meant that we didn't have internet access. We didn't have computers and we didn't have software. Literally everything, all client information, as we tracked cases, at least we saw the difference that we were making. We were doing it all on pieces of paper. So a big thing that I'm proud of has been investing in technology and that's really been in partnering with friends in the corporate sector who've helped us to really make strides in that area um, so that we can start measuring things because although at the end of the day, it's not going to be, uh, you know, huge numbers of, you know, this many classes or, or, or this many blankets or this many meals, because at the end of the day, when we engage with a client, um, we are looking at seeing their whole life change. So it's much more qualitative uh, for every one pregnant girl uh, that we're dealing with. We, are engaging with 20 other people in her life, right? Because we don't want her to get pregnant again six six months later because she's gone back to an abusive relationship or a dangerous home or she dropped out of school and she doesn't feel like she has any other options. So um, it's much more qualitative, but now at least I can track that. I can track it online and I can articulate to our stakeholders in a much better way. And uh, although it's hard to do that, it's been worth it and it's been a long process. And now as I look at my own team, I can see the difference that we're making. We're not there yet in the city of Hong Kong or in the world where we are raising children in cities where they are always know they're going to have a loving family, where they know their potential, where they reach their potential. But as now 33 years later, I'm hiring some of our former clients. <laughs> you know, we have... Children who were adopted who come back to work for us, young women who were pregnant as teenagers come back and work with us, or even um, work in community partners and invest back in us. That's how I know that we're uh, making a difference. Because ultimately, I think real impact in the nonprofit sector has to be multi-generational. If you really wanna see somebody's life change, 
It can't just be that they've had a meal or they've been educated or they have a warm place to sleep. Uh, their life needs to be so changed in a way that it impacts their family line for generations. So um, that's how I know that we're making a difference. And that is awesome. I love that. I love that taking you know, multi-generational and multi-generational leadership. Like what are some things that stick with um, the offspring that stick with the next generation? Is it values uh, to you? Is it, is it religion? Is it some type of belief? Is it philosophy? What are some things that have really worked um, with uh, a few of your, I'm not going to say clients, but a few of the individuals that have come through mother's choice. Well, you know, Faith is certainly important to me. Mother's Choice is not a religious organization, but faith is certainly what drives many of us. And um, my personal faith is what, certainly what drives me and gives me the energy to keep to keep going and that sense of hope that the future can be better and that it's a privilege to love and invest in others. But I think ultimately it's been taking the time to articulate not just our vision and mission, but really think through what our values are and uh, articulate what they mean practically and talk about them all the time and invest in them and train them and not just with our staff so that we can make that kind of a difference in uh, our, our clients' lives, but even investing intentionally in the next generation. Uh, at Mother's Choice, I told you I started out as a nine-year-old volunteering here at Mother's Choice. And I think oftentimes for nonprofits, you know, bringing along children or youth volunteers to come alongside you, it's a lot of work, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy. And especially for us, child protection is one of our core values. So doing things in a way that's safe and inclusive for children, it's not easy to do well. But I think um, if you really want to have values that are not just words that somebody has on a poster near their door, but uh, something that people really live, whether it's my children or, or at Mother's Choice, I think um, intentionally bringing alongside um, people of different generations to work with us. Because if you have a problem in our, your community and you're not including the community to be part of the solution, you're not looking at the different generations and sharing very intentionally what your values are, um, it can go like this, you know, culture takes constant investment. Now you mentioned the intention is to basically end a world where there's unstable families along the lines of this. Um, now this cycle we hear about all the time, this vicious cycle, you're intercepting these children and hopefully putting them back in a better position than they were before. Is this a model that can be replicated throughout the world? And what are your thoughts on expanding or just a, a, a long-term vision for Mother's Choice? Sure. Well, look, ultimately, there's four things that we do. One, we um, find families for children who are in the system. What, and that's both reuniting them with birth families through that safe and possible or helping children to be adopted. Um, because we know that children's life stories are changed when they grow up in family. The second thing that we do is we walk alongside um, young girls who are facing a crisis pregnancy and knowing that there's no such thing as a hopeless case and um, knowing that actually the biggest moments of crisis in somebody's life can be that um, opportunity that you've been waiting for for change, that you can see your, your life go in another direction. 
Um, we equip families with the knowledge and skills that they need to care for children, but we also help build community around them because parenting is a lifelong journey. You cannot do it alone. And ultimately, we're very intentional about collaborating across our community um, with the corporate sector, with the faith communities, with the academic sector, with the legal and justice um, community here, because everybody has a role to play. And it's only together, when we collaborate together, that we can see our city transformed. And although we're very much a local charity, I'd say this is a global problem and our approach can be applied globally. So we always say we model small and we invest in our capacity, like in our technology that I was just sharing with you, so that we can influence big. And influence big means we've captured our learnings um, from our small model here in Hong Kong. Um, we've captured our learnings through building up our capacity so that we can share it with others. And we've been the, the beneficiaries of partnering with others around the world to learn global best practice and adapt it for our own home culture. Um, but we want to do that for others. And we have done it over the years. We've um, uh, shared our expertise and learning and model with similar organizations in India and in China and in Cambodia. So um, ultimately, my dream is that we'll be able to really, um, through that education and training um, and, and sharing what we've learned with others, that we can grow our impact. So not that we become a huge charity that um, does on-the-ground work in every country in the world, but that people will be able to come to us and learn from us what we all threw from our mistakes and our successes over 30 years and replicate it in their own home communities. Uh, Ali, in order to, to have that, multi-generational uh, change. You talked about sustaining mm -hmm. organizations. You also mentioned your um, corporate uh, lawyer background, your affiliation mm -hmm. with YPO. What is um, mm -hmm. maybe the importance of including private sector relationships in a, a partnership like yours in terms of sustaining things, assuming that most nonprofits are relying on, on grants or donations? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's, it's not just something that I would say to other nonprofits to intentionally partner with the corporate sector um, because they already know we need to. They, they, every nonprofit you can think of is struggling with their own lack of resources or not enough people or um, not enough infrastructure. But it's really a challenge that I would give to, to business leaders. Um, you know, sometimes the most successful business leaders think, I barely have time for my own family and my own work. You know, what can I do? But I would say I would really challenge, and I share this actually at YPL all the time, you know, through mentorship, through taking the time, even sometimes it's just taking out a nonprofit leader for lunch or coffee or breakfast once a month, being that person that they can bounce ideas off of, you know, what may feel like an intractable situation for them. You might have an idea from your own experience or you might be able to uh, connect them with your network or give them ideas. I mean, honestly, I, when I think about some of the things we've been able to do over the last eight and a half years, they weren't my idea. <laughs> I didn't know how to solve the problems, but, you know, through my friends at YPO, through my friends, through my um, through my old life as an M&A lawyer, you know, I, at least I had people I could call on and, and they knew which software we should be using or they had an idea of somebody who was an expert in a specific area who could come and train our team. Mm. And so I, I think uh, 
yeah, I would challenge every business leader to think about investing in a nonprofit leader and really building a long-term relationship, not just coming in for the day and saying, oh, I'll come and paint some walls or move some boxes, but being in a relationship so they can really get to know um, the challenges of nonprofit and invest in their communities. What do you think is in- inhibiting uh, for-profit leaders from doing that? Inhibiting for-profit leaders or anyone in a uh, corporate setting to transition maybe to a more purposeful career. What do you think that is? Uh, well, I always think there's fear, fear that there's not enough time or there's not enough money. But I would challenge people to um, a core value for our family is gratitude. And it's really what sustains me. It helps build my hope. It helps me um, be more creative. If you can, uh, you know, every morning and every evening, actually, our whole family, we have a practice of really thinking about what we're grateful for. Um, and I, I would say that to uh, business leaders, too. Think about the things that you're grateful for. Focus on what you have. It makes you realize you have so much more than you realize. <laughs> you know, you you have access and ideas. And it's only from that place of recognizing that you have more than enough, that you're in a place of abundance, that you can give to other people. And um, there's many different ways to partner with and support nonprofit um, through mentoring nonprofit leaders, as I mentioned. I think rather than just thinking I need to write a big check so I'm scared of meeting with a nonprofit, I think it's not just giving money. Sometimes it's just giving your time or your professional skills or your expertise, or it's raising awareness. You might have a platform to speak up where a nonprofit leader does not have that same platform. Um, and, and as I said earlier, it's also making connections um, and using your network. So there's many different ways, but I think it starts with um, really being grateful for what you have, uh, recognizing you don't need to be uh, afraid of having things taken away from you because you have way more than you realize. Right. I mean, it sounds like fulfillment's an inside job. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you may have been fearful about leaving something, but now the gratitude you have is much greater. Uh, I think that's an interesting take. And that's why I want to ask you, like, you've impacted so many people. Like, how have these people really impacted you? I have received so much more than I ever could have given. Uh, You know, I have not only been helped in so many different ways in doing my job, but I've uh, also realized what a gift it is to be able to invest in somebody else's life. And um, yeah, my, my family's changed forever and I'm really grateful to be here. Well, Ollie, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I know it's early there in Hong Kong. I know we're asking a lot of, a lot of big questions. It's it's 7 a.m. there, folks. Uh, so let's give Ali a round of applause for, for being here. Uh, but let's bring this home, Alia. We've talked a lot about your values growing up, um, what your mother instilled in you, kind of how they followed you along throughout your career, where you got to the point, now you're a mother's choice. To you, Alia Ayers, what is your definition of a real leader? A real leader is an authentic leader. When we can be vulnerable and uh, humble enough to recognize that we don't get it all right and we need other people, um, we can experience the power of being in relationship with others and both giving and receiving love. So authenticity is what makes a real leader in my book. Love it. Love it. Ollie, just want to appreciate your time. We've got a few questions flying in. We're going to ask you to hang around uh, for okay. the sake of our fans. But for all your ears, I'm Kevin Edwards. I see you go out there. Be authentic, folks. And always keep it real. Thanks, Ollie.
And thank you, good people, for listening to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Alia Ayers. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you didn't know by now, folks, all of these episodes are streamed live on our Crowdcast platform. There's a couple ways you can figure out how to be notified. The first, there's a link in the bio. Click it. You'll be on our list where we will send you updates with upcoming events for ones that fit with your schedule. And you can just RSVP. Two, you can go online to realleaders.com, podcast events. Click on that and RSVP there. Or three, follow us on social media. We're posting on the reg, folks. We're posting daily about leadership tips, advice, inspiring stories from all around the world that are changing business as we know it. With that being said, the last ask I have, if you're still listening to this monologue, is to leave a review. Scroll all the way down to the bottom where it says review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the star button and let us know how we can improve what you think or what to expect when people visit this channel. But I was actually thinking about this the other day, folks. What's like an actual review, a real review? You know, the the review back in the old days, an authentic review, you know what I'm saying? Just tell your friends about it. Your friends ever ask you about what podcast do you listen to? You say, I listen to this one. I listen to this one. But you know what? My favorite podcast is the Real Ears Podcast because they're all about inspiring stories about crazy people, folks. Crazy people that want to change the world. We adopt crazy here at Reelers, and we hope that you continue to keep it real. Thanks for listening.